Amen. What an amazing time of worship. Amen. I love what Pastor Greg said there, that worship doesn't stop because the music's over. It continues. Um, I do want to share quickly a couple things. Um, and this isn't even in my notes, so just hold on a minute. Um, so two things real quick. First of all, uh, so good to hear Bella sing this morning. That really did in my heart uh, a great joy. Uh, we miss these guys. So glad that they're able to be with us while they're in Michigan um, experiencing horrible roads. It's always good to have them with us. But uh, be praying for these guys as they obviously are continuing on. And so I want to keep praying for them and ask the Lord to do a great work there. But um, I also want to share something kind of cool that maybe you've heard of this or you know of this being in the community. Um, some of you know, unfortunately, if you go north of here uh, towards Marlette, there's a little church at the kind of the corner where Montgomery Road runs into 53 called Bethel Church. Um, uh, here, just uh, I believe it was a couple months ago, they ended up uh, unfortunately closing their doors and closing as a church. Um, and so a for sale sign went out front, and I remember just driving by there now that we live in Marlette, just praying, Lord, just bring a different ministry in there, Lord. Don't, don't let that church just, you know, go away altogether. We pray for more churches in our community, not less. And uh, it was so cool to see, some of you maybe have seen this, that there was a, a little church, it's a storefront church in Marlette, uh, Bible Truth Baptist Church, I believe. And um, I don't know much about them. I know a few people that attend there and, and whatnot. Um, and so it seems like a really good church as far as Bible preaching, you know, solid church that way. And so uh, I saw a sign out front, like a kind of a temporary sign in front of the old Bethel building. And this morning, I believe, if I'm right, is their first Sunday in the building. They were able to move in to that building and have that given to them. And I was talking to one of the uh, gentlemen that's kind of in somewhat leadership there and was just kind of saying, man, I heard about that. That's so exciting. And he literally just said, God literally gave us that building. It was so cool to watch God work. So I want to ask that, I mean, with all of our local churches, um, I know there's churches in our community that on certain doctrinal issues, we as a church would disagree with. And that's okay. Nothing wrong with disagreeing on those issues. But if it's a church that's preaching the gospel, preaching the word of God, uh, we can disagree about some minor issues over here. Uh, but when it comes to the core things that they're preaching Jesus, Paul says, I'm going to rejoice in that. And so let's as a church rejoice that a church in our community was given a building and able to move from their storefront into a property. And so let's be praying for that church, for growth, and for God to just really use them in the community, as I pray we would pray for all of our local churches. Um, and I said this last week, if God sends revival, which I believe he sends revival every single day in our hearts, but if we're talking revival where it breaks out in churches, um, that's not going to be just confined to North Goodland, right? It's not going to be just us to get in on that, okay? God's not a God that works that way. He's going to work in the church of Christ, not just one little church here, one little church there. And so I'm excited for that. So let's be praying for God to do that in our local churches. Be praying for local pastors. Um, if you know someone that attends a different church, uh, they're not, it's not competition, okay? We're not like on opposite teams. We're, we're all hoping for people to come to know Christ. And so we want to be praying for our local churches and ministries. And so let's be praying for Bible Truth Baptist Church, that God will do a great work there as they're having their services this morning, because I was so excited to see that. So this morning, for us, we're going to get into uh, our third week of Conversations with God. So we said this before. If you're new with us this morning, haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, you can catch up online. But what we're doing over the next couple of weeks is asking the question, if you could sit down with God and have a cup of coffee, what would be a question or a conversation you would like to have with him? And as we said in the first week, we're not talking one cup of coffee. Amen? We're talking multiple cups of coffee. You're going to leave that conversation just jittery, okay? Because you've consumed a lot of caffeine, okay? 
But as we think about this idea of sitting down with God and having a conversation, we've talked a lot about different things already in just the first two weeks. Well, last week, we talked about how do we change the world? How do we, as followers of Christ, change the world? Well, we realized we don't really change the world. Amen? Uh, It's Christ through us and through gospel-centered revival that the world will be changed and is being changed. And I know that maybe when you left last week, you were, you were excited and you're praying, God, I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would send forth laborers into your harvest, that people would come to know Christ. And that's what we should be praying and praying, God, how can I be a part of that? Maybe you can't go next door and talk to your neighbors, or maybe you have tried that and it didn't really go anywhere, but maybe you can be praying for missionaries. Maybe you can be supporting missions overseas. I I just shared it on our church Facebook page. If you haven't seen it yet, Uh, we support Ben and Sarah Layer, who are in Poland, and uh, they were just sharing an update that the baptisms they were able to have in July, new converts coming into the church, um, and just how God is doing a great work in the nation of Poland. And you get to be a part of that by just supporting the missions here at North Goodland and praying for them. You don't have to go to Poland to have an impact for Christ in Poland. But by being a part of this ministry, supporting financially, supporting with your prayers, you're seeing the global gospel happen right now in our day and age. We can see it unfolding before us. But if we're being honest, sometimes we think, well, that's far, few and far between. God doesn't really, I mean, he wants to move that way, but people really aren't getting saved like that. I've been so encouraged. There's a couple individuals that I, I follow on Facebook. One is a kind of like a camp speaker. I don't know him personally, just can't stumble across his ministry. Um, and just seeing some things that he's been posting this summer about some of the camps he's been at. And a few, uh, maybe about a month ago or so, he said that uh, in his experience over the last, I don't know, 10 years or 12 years of preaching at and speaking at youth camps, uh, usually they saw about the same percentage for a few years where the number of kids that are either responding to Christ in full-time ministry or getting saved. He said this summer, he's never in like 12 years seen the amount of response from the younger generation like he's seeing this summer. Where in one camp, I want to say he said it was something like 60%. 65% of the kids made some kind of a decision, whether it's full-time ministry, getting saved, whatever. And he even posted on and he said, this is blowing me away to see how God is moving in this generation. So when we start looking at things we don't like about our world today, it's okay to say, I'm not a fan of this, I'm not a fan of that. But don't become that person that thinks, well, God's not really able to do what he wants to do. Or he wants to do it, but people just aren't really responding If you think that way, you've probably watched more news and spent too much time on social media, but you're not really seeing what God is actually doing, which is saving people for his glory. And he's still doing that. He's never going to stop doing that until the time comes where he says, okay, now we're done. But as long as there's breath in our lungs, we're to preach the gospel. We're to share the gospel. Why? Because people are being saved. God is doing a global work. So don't let the enemy convince you otherwise. I know there's things we see in our world we don't like, and I know there's people that won't believe. Maybe you've shared your faith with people at your workplace, and you've tried it different ways, and you've tried to be creative, and they still just don't believe. That's not on you. We said it last week. We are just distributors. We're not manufacturers. You don't manufacture conversion in someone. That's not your job. It's never been your job. All we're called to do is just lay before them the truth of the gospel, pray the spirit of God is working in them, and then pray that they respond in faith, receiving Christ. And it's up to them how they respond. God has given them that invitation. And then he allows them by his grace to say, I'm not going to force this thing upon you. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
And so we just lay the gospel out there. We don't say, God, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to convince them of this. And the word of God is what convinces. The spirit of God is what draws unto repentance. We just lay before them the gospel. But people will believe. People won't believe. And so as we talked about last week with this idea of revival, I want us to be encouraged. God is doing a work. Now, we may not always see the fruit of that in our immediate lives. That's okay. I don't have to see the fruit every single day in my life to know that God is working. Because I believe and trust by faith that he is the Lord of the harvest and he is drawing to him those that would be saved. And so we rejoice in that. But this morning, as we get into our third week of conversations with God, I want to kind of address an issue that when we talk about revival and God drawing people to repentance and all these things, we have to kind of talk about the other side of that coin, which is that in the last, it seems to me, about 10 years, there's a term that's become really, really popular. And so I'm going to address that term. But really, I say it's been going on for 10 years or 15 years in the church as we know it in the States. But it's probably, if we're being honest, 2,000 years old. Because as long as there's been the church, this has been going on. And this is, what would God say about deconstructing? And that's the term that I've heard a lot. Maybe you've heard this and you've read articles about certain Christian individuals uh, in worship teams or pastors or other individuals deconstructing their faith. And so I want to ask the question, what would God say about Christians deconstructing? What does that even mean? What does that look like? And how do we as followers of Christ address that issue? How do we have a conversation with somebody that's maybe going through that Is that a good thing? Should we all, at some degree, deconstruct? Do we need to kind of take a step back and evaluate? So we want to unpack that as best we can this morning. As I said before, I'm not looking to address every single avenue of this, unpack every single application of this. I want to give you kind of a baseline and then pray God will give you wisdom and application for yourself, for your certain situations where you find yourself. And so um, I, I want to kind of open it up with a definition for deconstructing. So deconstructing is a term given to those who are questioning what they were taught. Usually, this is those who grew up in the faith. They grew up in church. Okay, They were raised in church, which is a very good thing, by the way. And they grew up in church. They professed faith in Christ at some younger age. They reached an age of questioning. They started questioning the things they had been taught. They start to tear down some of those orthodox Christian views that they were taught. They start to kind of question all these different things that they were taught, and they start to tear down some of those beliefs, some of those doctrines that they've been taught. The desire is this, and just reading articles of individuals and, and kind of just talking in some level with some people, the desire is, I want to get past all of that and get to the core of what is Christianity. What did Jesus really teach? So the desire is, I want to get past all the the denominational walls. I want to get past all this other stuff that I've been taught, some stuff that's in the Bible, some stuff that's just church traditions. I'm going to get past all of that. I want to get to the core of, okay, what did Jesus actually teach? What did he really believe? And what does he want us to believe as Christians? Most have come to a conclusion that when they get beyond all that, they get to a somewhat of an understanding of what they believe Jesus teaches. They think, well, all Orthodox Christianity then must be thrown away. It's too complicated. It's too complex. we got to keep it simple to just what did Jesus say? And so some of these individuals then take the next step to come to the conclusion that Christianity is not really even found in those Orthodox teachings. 
that to hold to any of them is you're, you're changing the very heart of Christianity. So they reject all of it. And all of a sudden now things like attending church, because that's corporate church, that's religion. I don't need that. Reading the Bible. Well, I don't trust the Bible except for the Gospels, so I don't need the Bible. Becomes, Jesus becomes more of a kind of a, a convenience for me. I go to him when I need something, and he teaches me to be loving and to be kind and moral, and so I'll, I'll use those things. The other things that he talks about as far as judgment or you know, those kind of things, I'm just going to reject those because that doesn't fit with what I think Jesus would really teach kind of creates this humanistic, very cultural-driven Christianity. And then ultimately, many of these individuals leave the faith. So what do you do with that? When you sit across from someone and they're saying, man, I just, you know, I grew up in church. I was raised in the church. I went to Sunday school. I went to junior church. I went to VBS. And I memorized all these verses. And now they're in their 20s or their 30s. And they're like, I just don't know if I believe this anymore. I just don't think I believe this stuff. Well, the first thing we need to do is, as we said before, we need to be compassionate. Amen? Some of us are really quick to be like, you're an idiot. Let me tell you why you're an idiot. Here you go. Until you're the one on the other side of the table asking the questions. By the way, they're just brave enough to ask the questions out loud that you've been asking yourself and God for years. So what do you do with that? I mean, do we need to throw away everything that's just tradition and orthodox and, you know, this is an old teaching. We don't need that anymore. We just have Jesus. Jesus is enough. I don't need your theology and your doctrine and all that. I just need Jesus. This is what people are wrestling with in our culture today. People in their 20s and 30s usually are asking questions and they don't like or believe the answers they are getting are sufficient. They're getting answers, some of them, but they don't think they're sufficient. They don't fit what they're thinking. Again, as a result, some Christians, and I'll use that term because that's how they identify, but we'll unpack what that really means. Some of these so-called Christians or professing Christians renounce their faith and leave the church. And so what would God say about this? If I was asking these questions and I'm sitting across from the Father and I'm like, it says it, but I don't know if I believe it anymore. What would God say? Would God quickly respond with a quick word? Would he condemn? Would he judge? Would he show compassion? Would he say, you're fine? Well, I believe God can give us and we can read an answer in his word, at least an idea of a basis. Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can turn to page 731. 731 in one of the Bibles provided. Luke 14. So Luke 14, a familiar passage for some. It's maybe a passage that we skip over sometimes, excuse me, when we're reading. Luke 14, look at verse 25. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, so the multitudes, this large group, and I've said this before, Jesus was amazing at making a large crowd really small. He was like anti-church growth from nowadays. Because see, in church growth things, it's like, look, just get him in the door and keep him as long as you can. Do whatever you got to do. Change the message. Water it down. Don't talk about things like hell or the blood or sin or judgment. 
No, 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 no. Just talk about how God wants to fulfill all their dreams and wishes. How God wants to see them successful, healthy, wealthy, and prospering. Because if you do that, man, you can build a multitude. Now, this multitude was following. We don't really know for sure why, but there's a lot of reasons why people even today are interested in Jesus. Some are genuinely interested. They really are like, man, I've heard of this Jesus. I just want to know more. Like, I'm not, like, looking for an easy answer. I just want to know the truth. Now, we know they don't ultimately seek the truth, Paul says that, but at least in their understanding. Some see somebody in their life pray for healing, and they received a healing. God graciously healed them of whatever they were struggling with. And they go, man, if that's what God can do for them, maybe God can do that for me. I want that. So now we're like those that received the blessing of the miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus said, you don't follow me because you really want to be my disciple. You follow me because you're hungry and you want a handout. Now I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he said. You don't really, you're not really having ears to hear. If you think of it this way, you have bellies that are grumbling, right? You just want to eat something. So there's all different reasons why people follow Jesus. But look what Jesus says to this large group of a, of a multitude. Maybe different reasons. Some religious leaders maybe that are trying to trip him up. His disciples are also in this group. It says here in verse 26, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. I don't see that verse on t-shirts a whole lot. I don't see that on the coffee cups a whole lot. Verse 27, And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and Counteth the cost, whether he has sufficient to finish it. Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able to ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, what, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its savior, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray and ask God to give us the wisdom to hear what he's saying this morning. Father, Lord, we need you to make clear to us what you have for us. We ask for the wisdom of your Holy Spirit, not for our understanding, because we don't understand. Lord, we see with a finite mind, we, we struggle with these concepts, these ideas, and only by the working of your Holy Spirit, by grace, through faith, will you give us wisdom in these things. And Father, thank you that the only reason we could follow you. The only way that we are even able to be saved is because you loved us first. Because you came to us. You died on the cross for us. You invited us. And so I pray that as we talk about this idea of living for you and discipleship and what does that look like and these questions that we all wrestle with, myself included, I pray, Father, that we would know that it's not about getting an answer to the question that makes us have peace or brings joy. It's about knowing that even when we don't understand the answer, maybe we don't even know what questions to ask. If we have Christ, we have all we need. 
We have peace because you grant it to us by the working of your Holy Spirit, according to John 14, 27. So I pray that we would, yes, Lord, understand that we all have these questions, but I pray that we would look to you for peace and comfort, even in the midst of uncertainty, because you call us to a relationship, to walk with you. But in that invitation, Lord, there is a cost. I pray that we would take time to evaluate that this morning. Lord, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we dive into this challenging passage, which really calls us to many things, I want to take a note of where we're at in Luke. So Luke 14, we're not going to read it, but just kind of unpack a little bit of what's going on before and after this text that we just read. So in Luke chapter 14, verses 15 through 24, we see what's called the Great Supper. This is a parable. This is a story with a heavenly meaning. And he's primarily the audience is the Jews. Okay, so he's telling this story to this Jewish audience. And it's about a dinner that is prepared and certain guests. There's a guest list. And he invites these certain guests. So the servants of the master go out and they try to get these certain guests to come. And as he's going down the list, these servants are going down the list, every single one of them has got an excuse. That's the basic summary of this. We can't make it, we're busy. We got this going on, we got that going on, we got that going on. And so the servants come back to the master and said, hey, we did what you said, but they don't want to come. And so the master responds with, go out to the highways and the byways and compel them to come in. My house will be full, he says. And so the servants go out and just anybody that, that is available. He just, hey, you want to come to dinner? Free dinner. And I know we're all thinking, I'd be there, right? And they're just, anybody and everybody's getting an invitation. And that is a great picture of the gospel. When Jesus came, he went to the Jews first. You are my chosen people. And the Bible says, for the most part, they rejected him. Jesus even said, a prophet doesn't even have honor in his hometown. They ran him off. Multiple times where Jesus was doing a great work and they go, can you just leave? (laughs) You're making us really uncomfortable because you're doing things outside of our understanding and we don't like that. So what did Jesus do? He left. And then the Bible says that he went from the Jews to the Gentiles. And he began to teach and preach and tell that my, my house will be full of my creation. And anyone who wants to come can come. Now we understand that this is a parable it does picture the idea of the dinner that we will receive, the, the wedding supper of the lamb in heaven. Obviously, we talk about that in Revelation. But, but the idea here is really simple. A master wants people to come to him, to have a relationship with him. So he invites anybody that would come. And that's happening right before our passage. And then right after our passage in chapter 15, we read the very famous parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. As we've said before, this is one parable from three different aspects. It's all about something being lost, something was found, and there's great rejoicing, both in heaven and among those that found it. And again, we, we're very familiar with the prodigal son, the son that ran away, and that's the interesting part of the parable because the other two give us the, per, the perception of the one that lost something is doing the seeking. Only in the part of the prodigal do we see the one that was lost from his point of view what it looked like to be lost. And then the father patiently waiting for him to return. It's an amazing story of God's gracious patience to us in repentance. That he is saying, I am waiting for you to repent and come home. And when we are found, there is rejoicing. 
not just among us and our human understanding, but all of heaven is rejoicing at one of his creation receiving Christ. See, when you got saved, whenever that was, however many years ago, when you received Christ, and again, not of your own doing, he worked in your heart, he came to you. But when you responded by faith and said, I believe, man, all of heaven erupted. The angelic host began to praise the Son of God, the Lamb that was slain. And I want you to think about that. That's how much you matter to him. That when you received Christ, all of heaven rejoiced. And so we see in this passage in Luke 14, the idea of this general invitation given to all. It's the call to any that would come. In the book of Romans, there's the idea of a call, a general call. And then we read about those who receive that call, now receive Romans 8, the Spirit of God, the love of Christ in a unique way that they would never be forsaken. See, there's a general call to the whole world. For God to love the world. But when those who receive Christ come, they are invited into that family relationship with the Father. And then right after this, we see the same idea, an invitation to those that are lost to be found. And in the middle of this, we read our passage. You see, these passages communicate God's love and invitation to salvation, that we are all invited to the dinner, and when we respond, there is rejoicing in heaven. In the passage we read, our specific text, we discover Jesus sharing what responding to the invitation looks like in our lives. The invitation, you can come, but then Jesus says, but if you come, this is what it's going to cost you. See, there's a cost to the receiving the invitation. The truth is Christianity is not an easy road. And I think as we talk about this idea of people that have questions and deconstructing and all of this, they have to understand Christianity was never meant to be easy. It was never intended to be palatable to our human nature. It was never meant to be comfortable or convenient or self-serving. So if somebody's starting there with their questions, they already have a wrong basis. We have to hear that and help them to understand what Christianity really is. Odds are when they were led to Christ, they were told a false gospel and didn't even realize it. Because they were told, get saved and your life will be great. Get saved and everything will be perfect. Get saved and your bank account will always be full. Get saved and you'll always be healthy, wealthy, and blessed. Are there blessings that come as a follower of Christ? Praise God, yes, there are. And I mean, many of you could stand and say, let me just tell you about the blessing of knowing my Savior personally, how he's worked in me, how he's brought peace to me in times of grief or suffering, how he was with me in the fire as we sang about. There's great blessings in being a follower of Christ. But there's also great struggle, great challenges, not because God makes those things happen in our life, because we have a human nature that's flawed, and we want our own way, and we're full of pride and self-righteousness and arrogance, and then we buck the system, and we fight back, and God's going, You're making this really difficult because sin is destructive. And so here we understand that is not the invitation. The invitation is not come and everything will be perfect. I've heard it said before that those that think Christianity is supposed to be this easy road where everything is met, first time asked, there's no discomfort. Man, what's heaven going to be then? See, that's why heaven is heaven. And I did hear somebody in our Wednesday night group say, you know, you can't be married in heaven, right? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, I know. You're not going to be married in heaven. He goes, right. That's why it's heaven. (laughs) 
So we prayed and we laid hands on him and (laughs) shook him into repentance. No. But when we get to heaven, the reason it's heaven is because there's an absence of difficulty and struggle. No pain and sorrow, no sin, no temptation. Could you imagine the day that you don't have to wake up and deal with something tempting you in that day? Tempting you to lie, think a bitter thought towards someone, show anger. I I can't even imagine what that's going to be like. And unfortunately, those that don't know Christ, this is all the heaven they'll ever know. Because their eternity is going to be full of wrath, judgment, condemnation in a place called hell. That's not an easy message to preach, but it's one we have to preach. Why? Because it's what the word says. So these passages reveal to us there's an invitation, a desire of the Father to draw all that would come. But when we choose the invitation and we respond, we have to know what we're getting into. Jesus is calling us to more than casual Christianity and comfort. He is calling us to abandon self and our own understanding and trust him and his word. You see, this is the the key issue with those that are deconstructing. Do you trust Jesus and do you trust his word? Which brings us to two key things we have to understand when people come to us questioning their faith or deconstructing their faith. The first thing we have to understand is questions are healthy. Some of you need to know this because you have questions and you've been told that's really bad. That you should have just blind faith and just never question anything about your faith. No, 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 no. Questions are healthy. We must allow people to ask questions of our faith. Because we believe we hold the truth of salvation in our very hands through the gospel, we can and should welcome conversations and questions of others. Let people ask you questions. Have conversations. Engage in those things. So many have been made to feel they cannot ask questions, or when they do, the answer is, like many a parent has said to their child, because I said so. Well, why can't I have ice cream at 1030 at night? Because I said so. Why can't I go play in that road? Because I said so. Right? Can I go do this? Ask your mother. That's the other thing we always say (laughs) in our house. Because I said so, ask your mother. (laughs) I told you if you did that, you hurt yourself. That's the other thing we say. I could keep going, but I'm going to stop right there. I've told you before, I kind of, I'm a little bit like sinful in this. I kind of, I giggle when my kids get hurt doing the thing I said not to do because they would get hurt. And then they come to me and say they're hurt. And I'm like, I told you. Like, I wasn't lying to you. But so many in churches have been taught that idea. You have questions, don't ask. Because I said so. Now, this type of leading in churches or in Christian circles will encourage resentment and distrust in the questioner. The person asking the questions will begin to resent the people telling them, don't ask your questions. Don't question. And they'll start to think with bitterness, you just don't care about me. You don't care what I think. Or worse yet, you don't have an answer. And so to avoid looking foolish for not having an answer, you just don't want to give me an answer. There's resentment. There's distrust. Now, I will say this. There's many church denominations and traditions that are not at their core in the word of God, meaning you can't take me to book, chapter, and verse for why the church does this or that. It's based in a principle in God's word. But because I grew up in a church where that principle was made into a tradition and then made doctrine, 
and taught as doctrine, people start to question, well, why can't I do this in church? And they go to the Bible and it's not there. But then they're told, just don't ask any questions, just do what we say. Well, then what else are you telling me I should be doing that really maybe isn't in the Bible? And some of you grew up in churches like this. It was just you conform and you keep quiet. So we need to understand questions are healthy and good and should be asked. Now, they may not like the answer. The questioner may not like the answer. But that's not the point. The point is, ask your question. Let's discuss and come to an answer. And where do we get our answers from? Well, we direct them to the word of God. We can look to logic, archaeology, history, and other areas as we answer questions about our faith. There's all kinds of evidence outside of the Word of God that affirms the Word of God. But we don't start outside the Word of God. We are students of the Word. This is our foundation. And if I can go to something in archaeology that happens to affirm a moment in Scripture, praise God. I'm always amazed when Christians are surprised by that. I was so shocked to find out that there was this discovery in blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, well, the Bible said that. 3,000 years ago. Oh, wait, so we're not the center of our solar system? Mm. I think that was in, I think it, I think it's in there somewhere. And so when you think about that, we can go to those things. That's fine. Some of you are wired, like your mind is just so analytical and you can think that way and you can do those things. But we don't start there. We go to the word. Because at our core, Every belief we hold about God, salvation, Jesus Christ, Spirit of God, at its core, it's a belief we discovered in the Word of God. I didn't discover Jesus Christ was the Son of God and I needed to receive him as my Savior because of archaeology. Or because I looked at the stars and went, oh yeah, God has a son. That son died on the cross 2,000 years ago. No, no, no. I can look at creation and go, there is a God. But man, this is where that special revelation is found of Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. And so now, again, I do believe we can speak to evidence of God's word being true in other areas or sciences, but we merely view those areas through the lens of scripture. Why? Why such an emphasis on the Bible? Well, I genuinely believe that professing Christians are leaving the faith because they do not have a high view of scripture. They've been made to think that this book is just a book of opinions and ideas. Some have even been misled to think that in the 300s that church leaders just pick and choose what books they want to put in the Bible, and that's how we got our canon. This is actually still taught. I've heard people say this, and I'm like, you know that's been refuted, right? No, 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 no. I read it online. It's totally true. (laughs) Do you know that the first known canons, where they started to get put together and compiled all these letters that were being written as the Word of God? By the way, they knew when they were writing them they were the Word of God. Do you know that that was within 100 to 150 AD? And do you know that most of these things happened 50 to 75 years before they started being compiled? I mean, so accurately, so concise. Now, people say, well, what about the 300s and the Council of Nicaea? Wasn't even about scripture. It was about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Is he really the son of God and God himself? They were debating and coming to a conclusion on the divinity of Christ. And they concluded, he is God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so when we think about this, we need to understand the word of God is sufficient. It is our basis for our belief. The word is sufficient. 
It is without error and inspired. Without error and inspired. Go over to 2 Timothy. Super popular passage. Second Timothy, page 840, if you're using one of the Bibles provided. Second Timothy chapter 3. We're actually going to start in verse 14. It says here, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and has been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. This is the last thing that Tim, Paul wrote before he was martyred for his faith. And so he's writing to Timothy, and it's a beautiful letter. By the way, you don't read anywhere in here where Paul's like, I'm really bummed that God's letting me go through this. I'm really disappointed that God would let me go through this. No, in fact, he says, I can't wait for my life to be poured out as a drink offering for the glory of God. He's imprisoned, most likely in a dungeon-type prison called the Mamertine prison in, in Rome. And he goes on to say this. He's saying, listen, I'm writing these last words to you. I want you to get this. Verse 15. That from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture. Not just gospels. Not just the books you like. Not just the passages you like that are easy to put on t-shirts and Facebook. But all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Why is it profitable? Because we deem it profitable? No. It is profitable for doctrine, or that word just means teaching. Some people say, I don't need theology, I just need Jesus. Uh, That's a theology. Your view of Jesus is a theology. Anytime you have a view of God, it's a form of theology. It's a form of doctrine. We live it out every day. We pray out of our doctrine, out of our belief of who God is and what he has for me. We pray in that way. And some of you have a view of God as an angry, vindictive, vengeful God. It's mean. That's your doctrine. That's somewhere you got that in your head. And probably because you sat in churches where the pastor was angry and vindictive and mean. And you thought, well, that must be what God is like. And you've been functioning out of that teaching, that doctrine, praying, terrified of God. Some have been taught the opposite, that Jesus is this big, very effeminate, very easygoing, never harsh word, get genie from Aladdin type God. And you've been praying and functioning out of that view of God, and it's not biblical. He goes on to say this, all scripture is given by God for inspiration, or is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, teaching, for reproof, for correction, That means it's going to correct us, and that's not going to feel comfortable, but that's okay because the fruit is Christ-likeness. It's good. For instruction in righteousness, how to live this life in a way that honors God, the Word of God will reveal that to us. So why does he give us the Word? Why is it inspired? Why all these things? That the man or woman of God may be perfect, not faultless or flawless, but mature. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works, so that we might work out of our salvation good and righteous works, so that people will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. He inspired it. He spoke it so that we have everything we need to do what he's called us to do, to live in a way that honors him, so that people will see that and then in return, honor him. It's all for his glory. The word is sufficient. It is without error 
and inspired. Inspired just means God breathed. The Bible is the most unique book in in the history of mankind. It was written over 1,500 years. Over 1,500 years in its writing. 40 different authors, three different continents, in three different languages. It covers topics that if we went around the room today and I polled our church on certain topics that are recorded in Scripture, even though we would say we agree mostly on these things, we're going to find disagreements and difference of opinion and, and various views and thoughts on these things. The Bible doesn't disagree, disagree on any of these things. It is in complete agreement with itself. It's written in different modes, poetry, historical narrative, gospel, prophecy, all of these different types of writings, all compiled into one volume called the Word of God, and it is the inspired Word of God. Try to get 40 different authors, priests, kings, fishermen, everyday people, and the highest of society. Get them all in a room and say, okay, I want you guys to all write down your thoughts on this topic. You're going to get probably 56 different opinions out of 40 authors. Because one person's going, well, I could think this, or I could think that, or I could think this. But read the Word of God, and there's this beautiful uniformity to it. Now, each author writes in their own personality and their uniqueness. But God, because it is inspired, oversaw all of this. We have the completed revelation of God. You hold it in your lap. You have it on your phone. You can read it whenever you want. See, it's more than just a book. It is the inspired word of God. A good definition for inspiration would be, Charles Ryrie writes in his basic theology book, God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. God has composed these writings for us. Not only is it sufficient, it is our sole authority for our faith and practice. Should the foundation for all believers be that? Yes. But unfortunately, that's not the case. All believers should have the word of God as their sole authority for faith and practice. Somebody asked me one time, why are you Baptists? Why are you a Baptist church? Well, one, because our doctrine as a Baptist church agrees, in my opinion, with the New Testament doctrine. And what most people think negatively about Baptist churches has nothing to do with their doctrine. It has to do with their methodology. It has to do with how they do church or why they do these things. Most people come and go, well, if you're Baptist, that means you can't go to the movies, right? Because there's this mindset. Do you know that the number one principle in Baptist doctrine is the Bible is our sole authority for faith and practice? And again, shouldn't all Christians, all denominations have that? No. Unfortunately, in some denominations, papal decrees, the writings of church councils get on par with Scripture. And they're equal in their authority. And that's called blasphemy. That's heresy. That's why we don't go. You can look to a church council and say, I'm glad they affirmed this. But if they disagreed with the Bible, we're going with the Bible. Because it is our sole authority. Many churches say that it is the case that the Bible is, but that's not always so. It is good, again, to learn from church history, to see doctrine affirmed in past church councils, but our sole authority is the word of God. What we believe about God comes from his word. So, what do we do in that conversation? 
The person that says, I've got questions and I don't have answers to. I was taught this, I was taught that. You know what you do? You take them to the word. You say, let's talk about that specific belief for a little while. Let's ask why you were taught that, when you were taught that. What does the Bible say about that? Don't disregard or overgeneralize. Get into the heart of those questions. Because odds are they think culturally this is becoming normal, whatever it is. By the way, culture is not a standard for interpreting scripture. The Bible says marriage is between one man and one woman for life. That's the Bible. That's what it means. That's what it says. Culture can say whatever it wants. It doesn't change the word of God. So what do you do? You go to scripture and then they're going to do this. If they know Christ as a savior, they're genuinely saved. They're going to have that moment of wrestling. I want to believe that, but the culture is telling me this. If they disregard the Bible altogether, then we go to the gospel and we actually affirm they even know Christ. You see, you go to the word, you go to the gospel, you take them to those core things so that they can ask the right questions. In my mind, just in my opinion, we can ask questions, but we do not need to deconstruct when we are built on the foundation of Christ and his word. We do not need to deconstruct our faith if the foundation is right and it's Christ and his word. We can ask questions, but we will not tear down the walls of our faith because it was built on the right foundation. We can and should ask questions of our faith, but we also must be willing to hear the answer as truth from God's word, whether we like it or not. So, two kinds of people are deconstructing. You have those that ask the questions. You take them to God's word. They reject God's word. They rebel against his word. They live in sin. There's no conviction. There's no spiritual conviction. There's no feeling of the spirit drawing them to repentance. They profess to know Christ, but they rebel against him and his word continuously. Well, then I would take them to the gospel because according to the word of God, they don't know Christ. When you go to Luke, when it talks about this idea of being a disciple, there's no distinguishing thing between disciple and Christian in the word of God. A Christian is a disciple and a disciple is a Christian. We've made that different. I've actually heard people say, well, that's a discipleship verse, not a salvation verse. And I get what they mean. But if I'm truly saved, I'm a disciple. That's what the Bible says. You show me where there's a Christian who's not a disciple of Christ. Because disciple just means follower. And what better way to be a Christian than a follower of Christ? And so some would say, well, I, 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 I lost my salvation. I turned from my faith. No, you can't lose what you never had. And if you don't know Christ, you need to know him. But what about the person who does know Christ? But they're asking questions. They're frustrated with things they see in churches. They're, they're not seeing things in the church line up with scripture, but they want to know what the Bible says about these things. And they're hungry for answers. And they just are confused or they don't know because they've never been taught. Well, then that's a follower of Christ who needs encouragement and discipleship. And you just come alongside them and lovingly open the word of God with them and say, let's journey through this together. And so honestly, in today's day and age, so many people are like, well, that person's not a Christian anymore. They deconstructed, they left the faith, they lost their salvation. That's not in scripture. I don't believe they ever had it. But I do believe we can be followers of Christ who get discouraged and frustrated because our questions aren't getting answered and we can drift. We can, we can drift into even apathy and say, I don't really want church right now. That person didn't lose their salvation. They're still very much saved. But that's where the church and as believers, we come alongside them and love on them and encourage them and say, man, God wants to have a relationship with you. Don't, don't 
let this issue over here keep you from him. So we love on them with, with compassion. And so this morning, I just want to encourage you with this. If you're here this morning and you're asking questions, keep asking them. But be willing to hear the answer. Don't reject the answer because it doesn't fit with what you think. Open up your heart to the Lord and say, Lord, give me wisdom in this. I'm going to ask that we would bow in prayer as we spend some time in invitation and response. As you bow right there where you are. I know that this is somewhat and to some degree a complicated issue. And I know I'm trying to generalize and simplify an answer. But I pray that we would realize that everyone in this room, in our Christian life, we've all had questions. Some of those questions we can go to God's word and we can discover an answer. Some of those questions we go to his word and we don't find the answer we're looking for. And so when we have those moments, we trust him because he is trustworthy. We, we give him those moments and we say, Lord, I, I don't get this. I don't understand this, but I know you, I know your character, and I'm going to trust you in spite of my lack of understanding. Father, I pray that we would be compassionate to those around us in our world today that are maybe grown up in church and have questions and things. Lord, I pray that we'd be compassionate to have conversations with them, to take them to the word. But Father, I, I, I think that means we need to be in the word so that we might be able to show them and help them to know what the Bible says about those things. And Father, in our culture today, there is a desire to run as far as possible from anything that resembles your absolute truth. And I know that even in answering a question, even with compassion, with the firmness that is your truth, it can still offend. It will still upset people. It will still bother them because it pricks at our very human pride and, and our own understanding. But I pray you'd help us to continue. The answer is not to change what your word says. The answer is to speak truth in love. So help us to do that. Father, I pray that in, in a way that only you can, that you'll use the message this morning to help and encourage people, to strengthen them in their Christian lives. Lord, I know my words are weak and feeble. I'm unable to communicate all that you want to do, so I'm so thankful your spirit is already doing that work for us. I pray that you would just draw us to trust in you and all of this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? As we're led in a song of invitation, would you respond to what God is doing? Maybe you want to come and pray for someone that you know is struggling in their faith right now. They got questions and they're not really seeing the answers and they just, they're just struggling. They don't know if there are answers and you want to come and pray for them. Maybe you want to come and pray because you have questions that you're not getting answers to and you're getting frustrated. You come and pray, God, give me your wisdom. Whatever it is, would you just respond to what God is doing as we worship him this morning?